0: Our text from today our text for today is from Jude verses 8 through 16 because Jude is so short there is just one chapter so we call the reference by verse numbers hear the hear the word of our lord yet in like manner these people also relying on on their dreams defile the flesh reject authority and blaspheme all the glorious ones but when the archangel Michael contended with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blasph- blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and and perish in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast all. With you, without fear, shepherds feed themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in, in late autumn, twice dead uprooted wild waves of the sea, casting up foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom gloom and uh, uh, gloom of utter darkness that has been reserved forever. It is also about these that Enoch the seventh from Adam prosified, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, to, and, all to, and to convict all the ungodly of all of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage.
1: Thank you, Rosie and Jesse. And Rosie, what you said in your prayer about Christ is the means of grace, I think is profoundly true. We often look at the means of grace as communion and baptism, and those are means, but the the fundamental means of grace to us is Jesus himself. And as we open up this service, he opens his arms to us and says, come to me, all who are weary, and I'll give you rest. Which is why contending for the faith, as Jude here is instructing us to do, is so vital. So that obstacles are not put in the path of those who would come to grace. Who would walk to Jesus and find rest. To put a stumbling block in the path of children. This upsets Jesus. That anyone would block a path to life. And it upsets his apostles and his teachers. And so we are given in the book of Jude this rather intense track describing what these uh, obstacles look like. I want, with those words of Jude having just been read by Jesse, still ringing in our ears, I would like you to turn in your Bibles a few pages over to Second Peter. Between Second Peter and Jude are the Johns, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. So once you get past 1 John going backwards you'll get to 2 Peter chapter 2 and I would like to just read for us verses 10 through 19 <clears throat> kind of in the starting in the middle of verse 10 Bold and willful these bad influences do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones whereas angels though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wages for their wrongdoing, they count it Pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They've gone astray. they followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing but was rebuked for his own transgression, a speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven up by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. These are the words of the Lord. They sound familiar, don't they? Very familiar to what we just read. Some believe that Jude copied 2 Peter. Others, many others, much more than the, the first theory, hold the reverse, that Peter is copying from Jude. But still another supposition that I think makes a good deal of sense is that behind both Jude and Peter stands a kind of track of the times, a track for these bad influences that were predicted not only by the apostles but by Jesus himself to, to prepare the churches for these, these dangerous influences in the body of Christ. A kind of apostolic pattern of sound words, if you will, that was, that was repeated but applied and nuanced in different situations, a pattern that goes back not just to Jesus, but goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Indeed, a pattern of teaching from the Old Testament that applies the bad characters of the Old Testament in contrast to the faithful to give us a grid to understand our present times. To understand that what was written down, as Paul says elsewhere in the Old Testament, was written for our instruction. We upon whom the end of the ages has come. That we might be equipped to discern error. That we might be wise. So that, as Jude says, we might contend for the faith. These are vital truths for the body of Christ expressed with a great deal of rhetorical flourish. And you'll notice Jude quotes some things that might have been odd to us if we're familiar with the Bible. Do you guys remember when uh, Michael, the archangel, argued with the devil over Moses' body? Remember that? No. that is nowhere. It's, Deuteronomy records the burial of, Jesus, of Moses, but it says nowhere where, about the devil arguing with Michael about it. It's found in a document we don't even have anymore. We just know about it from the church fathers called the Assumption of Moses. Doesn't exist anymore. And then he quotes at length. In fact, the only text he quotes is 1 Enoch chapter 21, which of course we're all familiar with. 1 Enoch, which is not found in your Protestant Bible. It's not found in the Catholic Bible. It is a strange book, but Jude quotes it as a Jewish writer writing to a predominantly Jewish audience for whom these texts would have been very familiar. He was just being a good preacher, using texts of his day to illustrate his points. And likewise, Peter changes up this pattern for his audience. And indeed, some of the church fathers that we do have their writings preserved do similar kind of apostolic teaching to be aware of these bad influences that have emerged in the church. And guys, we need this today. If we are going to love our enemies, he's not calling out these bad influences for us to hate them, but to love them. But if we're going to love our enemies, we need to be able to identify who they are. And and he's calling out these errors so that if we can contend for the faith, we, we must be able to contend with its Dangers where it's threatened. And so we've, we need to know these things. This is a tract written for our time. We must apply it like Jude applied it to his, Peter to his, and we need to apply it to our time. But this is a tract to equip us to contend for the faith. And so would you pray with me that God would guide our time this morning to do just that. Father, we thank you for the apostolic pattern of sound words that not only in the gospel tracts, that are preserved in Matthew and Mark and Luke and indeed John's Gospel and all of its differences. Lord, it has also preserved a tract for us to be equipped to be wary of those who have slipped in unnoticed and who are actually dangerous, who create obstacles. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to identify where we ourselves have followed such patterns and where there may be obstacles in our own hearts. Lord, would you illuminate those and would you remove those obstacles? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I said, Jude here is primarily concerned in his short letter to help the churches identify bad influences. Some of these influencers who, as he writes at the beginning, have slipped in unnoticed like snakes slithering in. Uh, they, are, uh, they are also hidden reefs we read this morning. Hidden reefs. What's a hidden reef? Well, a hidden reef is something you don't see, but you will shipwreck on if you don't know it. Is there? These are dangerous elements that are camouflaged within the community. And what we find out about these, these influencers, and I'm using that word because some of them may have held uh, institutional offices. Some of them may have been uh, uh, elders or deacons. Uh, but others were just simply charismatic leaders that were influential. They, 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 were, they had amazing stories of their spiritual experiences. They, they boasted great wisdom and knowledge. And they were just simply influential in the church. But we see here that there was a dual problem with these self-centered individuals. They are self-centered in two particular ways. Look at, again at verse 8 of Jude. In verse 8, he says, Yet in like manner these people also, relying on their dreams, and we'll talk about that in a moment, defile the flesh, Reject authority. That's the same two themes he mentioned in verse 4 regarding these certain people who have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. When were they designated? In the Old Testament. The pattern written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. And there are indeed, as we saw last week in Justin's sermon, from Old Testament pictures of Israel and the Exodus, of Sodom and Gomorrah, of angels, and presumably from Genesis 6. So in our text this morning, we see Cain. We see Balaam. We see Korah. These individuals from the Old Testament who become paradigms. And what Jude is saying is, you have Balaams in your midst. Korah is rebelling among you. Cain is walking in broad daylight. And it, what marks them in particular is this despising of authority and this, uh, reject, this, this indulgence of the, of the flesh. Look what he goes on to say. Ungodly people, in verse 4, who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. And there you see that perversion of indulging the flesh, self-indulgent, and they deny our only Master and Lord. They reject authority, specifically the authority of Christ as Master and Lord. Likewise, in 2 Peter, we read this, "...the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority." So we see this dual problem repeated throughout, and I think we'll see that as we look at the examples he gives us uh, in verse 11. Look at Jude 11, when he he minds the Old Testament. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain. What's the way of Cain? Cain is the first murderer of the Bible. You might remember that he slayed his brother because his brother did what was right and he did not. And... Abel was accepted and Cain's sacrifice was rejected. And this made him furious. God saw that he was angry and addressed him. And said, if you do what's right, will you not be accepted, Cain? Listen, Cain, there's danger at your door. Sin is crouching. But you must rule over it. And Cain instead lies down and is ruled over by sin and then picks up the blade and kills his brother. He rejected God's instruction. He rejected God's authority. God kindly shepherded him, and he rejected it. No doubt he defiled the flesh, the flesh of his own brother, and his, his own self. But it's interesting to note that his example became a bad example for the rest of humanity. And Ge- Later in Genesis 4, a bad character, a bad fellow by the name of Lamech points back to Cain as an excuse for his own sin. And that's why the rabbis called Cain the first false teacher. He taught humanity how to go astray, they said. Well, he goes on, not just the, the, the way of Cain, the blood-stained path of Cain, but they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. What is Balaam's error? Balaam was a, a, uh, a non-Israelite prophet, but he was a prophet for hire. The error here was for the sake of gain, or as Peter puts it, unrighteous wages. He prophesied. There's a folk song that's, that sings, uh, I know many a preachers who will preach as long as they got their paycheck. That's Balaam. He'll preach for a small fee. He'll do whatever you want. You want him to shepherd? You want him to pastor? You, if you pay him enough, sure. This is the individual, this is the, even the mercenary who will do what needs to be done if paid enough. He's the first false prophet in the Jewish tradition who, who prophesied uh, for money, for gain, not because he, he sought to please the Lord. So when we see that error, you know, Cain's error was what? It was silencing the innocent to vindicate himself. When we see the church silencing individuals, victims, we know they have gone the way of Cain. And we rightly call it out. And when we see money or power being the driving concern of leaders or a church, we know they've gone the way of Balaam and we rightly call it out. We need to be equipped to do this because it's a very real danger in our midst. And then, of course, the revolt of Korah. You may not be as familiar with this one, but in number 16, Korah, who was an Israelite, was a little upset that Moses had all this authority and that the priesthood was entrusted to Aaron and to his line. After all, in Exodus, did not God say, you are all a kingdom of priests to me? And so he goes radically egalitarian. And here's what he argues to Moses. They, they being Korah and this huge cohort he'd gathered of other Israelites, assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You've gone too far. For in all the congregation, for yeah, all in the congregation are holy, not just you, Moses, not just you, Aaron, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves among the assembly of the Lord? So this, here you have the first, um, the first thorough congregationalist, right? Like the first, there should be no offices, it's just all the people are equally holy. How dare you claim that some people are entrusted with a different authority? And it's interesting, Moses' response, he doesn't argue with them. Moses prays and says, God, vindicate your way. And the next morning, the earth opens up and swallows Korah and all those people. (laughs) So it was pretty clear after that that God had blessed, that Moses did not exalt himself to this position, but the Lord placed him there. That Aaron did not seek out this priesthood, but it was entrusted to him on behalf of the priesthood of Israel. But this sort of ultra-democratic congregational mindset was actually not about the people. It was actually not about everyone equally being holy, it was really about Korah having control. It was ultimately about Korah's rejection of godly authority. And so often when we see people who push against uh, the church, they push against leadership, they resent leadership, oftentimes what you see is Korah reincarnated. And you should call it out, call it what it is, and reject it. In fact, the rabbis referred to him as the first schismatic. That is to say, the first church splitter was Korah. Not only did, unlike Moses, they self promote. Moses sought the Lord's vindication. They self promote. So they're not only uh, self centered, they're self promoting. We see that these sheep's, these wolves in sheep's clothing, present themselves as leaders. Earlier in verse 8, we said that they rely on dreams. That is, a, that is a kind of very traditional, especially Jewish way of speaking of false prophets. Moses and the prophets, when they speak of false prophets, will often speak of them as dreamers, those who dream dreams. They're not driven by God's word, but by their own dreams. When you, and you see this sometimes. You see leaders sort of preaching from the pulpit or presenting from up front their vision for the church, their vision for whatever it might be, their ministry. But it's less grounded in Scripture and more their own personality, their own charisma, their own desires. Well, these dreamers present themselves also as shepherds. In verse 12, that is to say pastors. In verse 12, it says that uh, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, probably a reference to Ezekiel, when Ezekiel talks about the bad shepherds of Israel who do not care for the flock, but feed instead themselves. And so he's saying these are, these are individuals who are would be shepherds of the flock, but really are looking out for number one. And in particular, he he talks about their love feasts, which is an interesting term. But what he's referring to is the communion table. We know from texts like 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that in in the early church, people didn't just take a thimble of juice and a little wafer. There was actually a a church potluck of sorts, and everyone sat down and ate a full meal and drank and celebrated the Lord's Supper together. Um, But these individuals abused this. We know from the Corinthian letter that some even got drunk at the Lord's Supper. But they were reveling and abusing and and, and taking advantage of this to feed their own uh, appetites rather than to care for other people. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that we are to examine ourselves before we come to the table. We are to check ourselves And we are to be aware of not just ourselves, but the congregation around us. The people of God with whom we are celebrating. And so there's a time for reflection. And we'll have a time of reflection this morning before we take communion. To do just that. To self-examine. And to come with hearts prepared. To to, to participate, as Paul says, in a worthy manner of the table. He then goes on to describe these no-good gurus in a very... I mean, this is poetry. Poetry. Uh, it's Eastern rhetorical flourish. It's, it's quite well done, uh, but uh, he describes them this way. Waterless clouds slept, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of our darkness has been reserved forever. Wow. That's a mouthful, isn't it? It's- very creative imagery, and he does that on purpose. We need to have those images in our minds. He, 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 he literally borrows imagery from every level of the cosmos, from the stars above to the clouds uh, in, in, in the atmosphere to the ocean to the trees on land. He, he goes to every corner of the universe to paint a vivid picture for us that we might be equipped to self-examine and to be aware of error in our midst. And in particular, what's being stressed here is that these no-good gurus are self-promoting. They're like clouds without rain. They promise rain. To quote a sting song, they're heavy clouds but no rain. They look like they're going to bring fruit or blessing to the earth, but they're just gas. Just empty gas. In fact, a proverb says this, it's on the screen, like clouds and wind without rain, is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. That's the idea. They're like trees without fruit. Jesus says you'll know them by their fruit, in this case, the lack of fruit. In late autumn, after the harvest is finished, they're done. Moreover, they're uprooted. That tree, except by an exceptional act of grace by God, renewing them and replanting them. That tree ain't bearing any fruit anytime soon. It's twice dead. What what kind of fruit? Money? (laughs) Influence? Circles of influence? No. Peace and patience and kindness and goodness. Self-control. Love. Joy. Humility. Meekness. These are the kinds of fruit, and if you don't see that fruit, be wary. They are driven along like wild ocean waves. Isaiah 57 says this, The wicked are like the tossing sea. It cannot be quiet. Its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. They are like a wandering star wandering, driven into oblivion by God knows what. Certainly they don't know what. They're driven by these desires of the flesh that they're, not, they're barely aware of, like the alcoholic who's sworn off drinking but finds himself at a work conference in a bar with a drink in his hand and doesn't know how he got there. Driven by desires she's not reflected on. Wandering like a shooting star that shines and then burns out forever. There is a lack of repentance here because there's a lack of awareness of what it is that even motivates them. Look at verse 16 at the end of his Enoch quote. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. And sometimes they're the last of all to know it. Driven by these desires, they do not repent. They don't know that there's anything to repent of. They've justified their actions in their own minds. They're convinced that they're righteous, that they are godly, and this is evident in their pride. They are spiritually boastful. Go back to verse eight. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones, which are probably angels. Uh, Peter says something very similar on the screen. You'll see it, but we read it earlier this morning. The Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous for punishment, uh, under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. There's those two things, those dual problems. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties or glorious ones. What's, what's, the, what's going on here? Well, it seems these individuals uh, felt that in order to exalt themselves in their self-promotion, they had to talk down others. They had to take others down a few notches. And they were not even ashamed to blaspheme or slander angelic authorities, things they did not even understand, but in their self-promotion presented as though they did, as though they were masters that they were a master experiences in, 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 in angeology and, and all these things. They thought they, were, they presented themselves as the ones who were the experts, the spiritual experts. But what Jude points out, as does Peter, is by their, their bold boasting, they reveal how little they really do know. Now, I don't know a whole lot of false teachers today who boast about their uh, superiority over the angels, but I know that there are a lot that are quite boastful and claim many experiences. It's interesting, when Paul does share his extraordinary spiritual experiences, he does so in the third person, as if to deflect some measure of honor. And even then, he calls his speech foolish talk. To boast in your experiences and talk about all that you know and all that you've seen Is usually a flag. These individuals were play-acting great spiritual authority. They were speaking about angels who, as Psalm 8 says, we were made a little bit lower than the angels, as if they were above them, to position themselves with an authority they did not have. We also see in verse 16 that they court favor with others. These are grumblers and malcontents falling their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, boasting in all that they know and experience, and showing favoritism to gain advantage. In the book of Romans, Paul writes, I urge you, brothers and sisters, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and create obstacles, contrary to the teaching you've learned. Turn away from them, for such people are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the unsuspecting. So these are flatterers seeking to show favoritism, to get in good with the right people. They use speech to manipulate and impress. Be careful. Be careful of those who are impressive. I love what um, Ray Ortland says. He says you can either be known or you can be impressive, but you cannot be both. Now, there are impressive saints. The saints that I'm impressed with don't boast about it. They don't show their impressiveness. It's evident by their fruit. But you can be known or you can be impressive. Which one are we? And perhaps the most disturbing to me in verse 16 is these are grumblers and malcontents. It's one thing to be discontent. Every saint is discontent at different points. But a malcontent just cannot be pleased. When it's summer, they want it to be winter. When it's winter, they want it to be summer. They're just never, never content. And so they grumble. They grumble in the congregation, they grumble from up front. They're just grumblers. And this is a problem for people of faith. On the screen, Justin referenced this last week from 1 Corinthians, but you'll see what what Paul has to say following this apostolic pattern of sound words. He says, now these things, what happened to Israel in the Exodus, took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written that people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, which is a euphemism for idolatrous worship. We must not indulge in sexual morality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happen to them as an example, but they are written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. The Old Testament was written for you. It was written to instruct you that you might be equipped to not only discern this error in our midst, but in ourselves. Where do you we tend to grumble? What's the difference between grumbling and complaint? The Psalms are filled with complaint. Complaint is submissive to God. It, it is done in the presence of God. Grumbling, if you like, is done behind his back and is unsubmissive to God. Complaint brings our discontent to God and ask for God to do something about it. Grumbling has already dismissed God as being a possible source and just curses him. As we read in this, this, this quote from Enoch, when he's, all these ungodly people, verse uh, verse 15, against all the ungodly for all their deeds of ungodliness and all that they have committed in such ungodly ways and of all the harsh things spoken against not just the holy ones, the angels, but against God. Grumbling is actually spoken against God himself. When we find our circumstances difficult and painful, it's one thing to complain and lament. It's another thing to grumble. Because to grumble is to complain not just toward God, but about him, against him. And this shouldn't be. We are to shine like stars in a generation of grumblers, Paul says. And so you and I, if we're honest, tend to grumble. We tend to be driven by desires we don't fully understand and not good ones. We tend to reject authority. We want to be our own authority. We kind of like Korah. I resonate with that guy but we need to come and be cleansed of these things. And the Lord's table provides us a wonderful opportunity to literally bow ourselves down before the table of God, to wash ourselves clean where we feel guilt and be cleansed afresh, and to put ourselves under the right authority, which isn't my own, but someone who's actually good. Someone who can actually love me well. Somebody who actually has wisdom. Somebody who is actually compassionate and kind toward me. Indeed, kinder toward me than I am to myself. What is it like to humble ourselves under him? This table is an opportunity to do that. And so now we're going to prepare ourselves to do just that. To cleanse ourselves of desires that drive us like the wind, and to humble ourselves under his good authority, our only Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. In the bulletins, you'll see a kind of prayer guide. I encourage you to look at that, if that's helpful to you. If you're more auditory, then just listen. And let's walk through this together. As we do this, by the way, I realize that some of the rows are very close. Some of them are not. If you have space and would like to, I want to invite you to even kneel, but I would do it on your jacket. The floor's a little hard. Uh, If you'd like to even get into the aisle and kneel while we pray, I just, I don't expect it. I just want to let you know you can do that. That's okay. (laughs) It won't be disruptive or strange if you do that. So with that said, let's begin our time of self-reflection. We bring our whole selves to this table, and so let's bring our whole selves into God's presence deliberately Lord we bring ourselves into your presence as you invite us to find rest Lord, as we walk through this time we pray your spirit would guide and sustain us I pray Lord first that we would reflect on our own bodies that you have made you have redeemed and you will resurrect where do we have pain in our body maybe there's sickness or illness Maybe something's happening in our bodies that's giving us fear. We're concerned. Lord, that's important to you, and we bring it to you. Maybe we're tired or uncomfortable. Lord, I ask that you would give us healing, even miraculous healing. Where we're exhausted, Lord, give our bodies rest. And then moving from our fingers and our our limbs to our chest, Lord, what are we feeling? We have fears. We have anxiety. Lord, we have longings. Our discontent reveals our longings. We encourage all of us now to take the time to name those anxieties, those longings, those desires, those disappointments, and take them to Christ to carry for us because he cares for you. As we reflect... Further into our minds what does memory and conscience speak to us? As we think back over this last week, what are highlights that stand out immediately as you scan those last few days? Where do you smile with gratitude and with joy? Take a moment to thank God for his kindness, his faithfulness. Where is there shame or a sense of guilt. Name that to Christ. You don't have to judge yourself. Just name it honestly. Judgment already has happened at the cross. Confess that. When did you feel most connected and whole? What were you doing? What was happening? where did you feel disconnected and fragmented maybe you were hurt by someone bring those hurts to jesus too he not only forgives he heals maybe something that even happened yesterday confess your sins to him who is quick to forgive, slow, to judge. And as we're prompted by the Holy Spirit and you confess that and ask for forgiveness, I want to remind you that scripture gives you a promise, all of us who have trusted in Christ to forgive us. Here's the word of promise for you this morning. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness.